Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host for the channel, Stephen Hausman. Today, I welcome to the podcast Katrina Jagodinsky, Associate Professor of History at the University of Nebraska and author of Legal Codes and Talking Trees, Indigenous Women's Sovereignty in the Sonoran and Puget Sound Borderlands, 1854 to 1946, which came out in 2016 with Yale University Press and in 2017 won the Western Historical Association's Armitage Jameson Award for Outstanding Book in Western Women's, Gender, and Sexuality History. Katrina, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Stephen. A pleasure. Why don't we begin by having you talk a little bit about yourself? How did you become interested in history in the first place, and what is your background as a historian? I think, like many historians, it started at a rather young age. Um, I grew up in northern Wisconsin in the midst of what's now referred to as the Walleye Wars, the 1990s treaty rights spearfishing debates that resulted in an affirmation of Ojibwe and Menominee spearfishing rights um, through the, the court system. And my mother was an activist who supported tribal treaty rights, and she brought me along with her as a child to boat landings to be an ally and witness to the violence and harassment that native spearfishers experienced at the hands of white anglers and um, protesters. And then she also took me to a number of rallies that involved both Green Party and tribal resource rights protectors. Uh, to oppose mining and specifically water pollution as a result of mining. So I grew up very much observant um, of the ongoing disputes over and for treaty rights. Um, That was just something that I thought, frankly, most people knew about. Hmm. Then when I would go to high school um, and have history classes, none of the context for those debates were being discussed, even though all of the students knew what was going on in the communities around them there in northern Wisconsin. Um, And when I went to college, I was actually more interested in um, an environmental rights perspective on that issue, Um, but then just became more and more attracted to the work that historians and especially um, critical native scholars and critical legal scholars were doing on the legacies of treaty rights activism. So um, I didn't make a lot of really clear and straightforward decisions from my childhood forward that got me uh, to be an associate professor of history at UNL. But things like going to um, a college like Lawrence University that had a strong humanities and interdisciplinary approach helped me transition from biology over to history. Um, The opportunity to be an intern at the DRC McNichol Center at the Newberry Library introduced me to American Indian Studies as a discipline and a field. 
So I chose to go to University of Arizona for my MA in American Indian Studies. I similarly thought that would be um, sort of the end of my training. Uh, I taught for two years at a tribal college, but really came to see again that history was maybe where my greatest strengths were. And so I went back to University of Arizona for a PhD in history and was able then to get the training to take on the project that became this book. And how did you end up working on this project in particular? What brought you to writing this book? Well, I talked to my advisors, um, Shanina Loma Waima in American Indian Studies and Roger Nichols in History about my interest in specifically Native women's contribution to um, sovereignty and ongoing treaty rights activism. And they were very supportive of my curiosity. So um, given the way in which all grad students are somewhat limited to the resources they have, I went into the Arizona archives, even though I was more familiar with the Great Lakes region's history. Um, and when I went into the Arizona archives, my simple question was just, you know, what, what evidence did Native women's legal claims generate? Um, what what signs are there in the 19th century historical record that Native women pressed claims and protested their marginality, their exploitation um, under the structures of colonialism? And it was difficult at first because as anyone who's used state archive or legal archives knows, they are generally not organized by race or ethnicity or gender. Um, and a lot of times um, are really indexed quite barely, I won't say poorly. Um, so I had to really just read the legal material case by case to start generating um, Native women's specific cases and also patterns in Native women's legal concerns and activities. Um, so it started quite simply, you know, just what will I find if I look for Native women's legal activity? And then the patterns that I discuss in the book are, are really what the records showed very clearly and very transparently. I want to start in, in talking about the book. I want to start with a question about geography. And maybe it's kind of obvious to say, but at least superficially, the Sonoran borderlands and the Puget Sound borderlands are very different places. So why did you choose to write a comparative study about people in these two specific areas? For two reasons. One was that the works, the scholarship um, from the last decade and and still continuing to trend that I really appreciate looks at indigenous activism and responses to colonialism in a comparative frame. And so I, I really wanted to be a part of that conversation. I knew, as I already said, that I would have to start just on the basis of resources with the local materials I had in Arizona. Um, but I wasn't really sure what my comparative study would be until I realized that a lot of the um, a lot of the Americans, whether they were part of the U.S. military, whether they were uh, settlers who were coming into Arizona in the mid 19th century, were referencing the Pacific Northwest in their imagination about what they would find in Arizona and the West more broadly speaking, I think um, understandably because of the 
the Oregon Trail and the way in which a lot of people moved west with that sort of migration in mind. So even though they went to Arizona, they were certainly part of the broader conversation around westward expansion. Um, Another reason that I started to turn more toward the Pacific Northwest as a comparative frame is that, you know, both Oregon and Washington and Arizona and New Mexico were brought into U.S. jurisdiction in the same time period, um, but under very different circumstances. So you have the developments of 1845 with the Oregon Treaty, you have the U.S.-Mexican War, 1846 to 1848, and yet scholars don't really think about those regions in dialogue with one another. So I guess my choice in in developing those two contexts was both from the archives themselves in the way in which settler colonists were thinking of Arizona in dialogue with the Pacific Northwest, and then also just um, in terms of context in the way in which the U.S. was expanding and incorporating um, Native and other colonial claims at the same time. Uh, the choice works really well, and it feels very natural in the book to, uh, to make that comparison. Um, the title of the book is also really quite striking, and I feel like serves as a, a good entry point into the central themes and arguments that you make within. Um, can you tell us what are talking trees, and how are they related to legal codes? I have to pause because the title does get a lot of questions. Um, one of those things I think for authors where you can be so deeply embedded in a project that everything seems really obvious and apparent to you. And then when you poke your head up afterward and start talking to other people, you realize that maybe not everything is as straightforward as you thought. So thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about that. So talking trees um, are from a specific uh, yaki tradition about the way in which they decided to encounter colonialism. Um, the story is summarized and recast at the very beginning of the book, um, but it allows me, one, to describe the way in which Yaquis and through comparison to other oral traditions, other tribes, imagined and placed Native women as very important actors in meeting and negotiating colonialism. Um, so the talking trees themselves are part of a prophetic um, story in which the trees themselves forecast the coming and the consequences of colonialism. And it's uh, two Yaqui women who translated those trees prophecy. My sense of talking trees more broadly speaking is that it's a signifier for the ways in which many tribes have considered their relationship um, both historically and currently to the forces of colonialism. And in many of those traditions, Native women play a central role. And my charge to historians is to examine the realized roles that Native women have played in responding to colonialism beyond the roles that they are given through oral tradition. Um, the way in which that corresponds to legal codes is that I'm also tapping into a scholarly tradition of looking at indigenous oral history 
as a form of case law, as a way of ordering and uh, structuring justice, the sense of right and wrong, um, of consequence for actions in an indigenous worldview and epistemology. And so stories like the talking tree story constitute a legal code. And so as scholars who are uh, interested in engaging indigenous perspectives, I think we have to be responsible in relying on oral tradition as much as we rely on something like a state legal archive. And so that's my effort um, to make that gesture very prominent in my work, not just at the beginning of the first few pages, but right in the title itself. Um, Secondly, my effort there is to show that not only in terms of oral tradition and philosophy and epistemology, but materially speaking and uh, literally speaking, Native people, and my focus is on Native women, but all Native people had a really sophisticated and strategic response to the legal codes that Americans brought westward with them. They not only had responses to the American systems, but they built those responses on their past experiences in negotiating with British, French, Spanish, and Mexican uh, legal systems in prior generations and prior decades to American arrival. So I wanted, again, to really demonstrate that um, this is a dialogue that goes back and forth. It's not just a story about the imposition of law on Native people, but it's a story about the response of Native people to the legal regimes constructed around them um, from the 1850s forward. You also refer regularly to a poem by Joy Harjo uh, called Returning from the Enemy throughout the book. What about this poem drew you in and how does it speak to the larger histories you're telling here? I think many Native authors, whether they're writing poetry or fiction or creative nonfiction, make direct critiques of the history and ongoing practices of colonialism and critiques of federal Indian law um, and colonial legal regimes as well. And so Joy Harjo is one of a community of authors who does that. The particular poem that really resonated for me in thinking about the women I was writing about um, speaks from a personal voice. And so I really appreciated the ability to think of um, a Native woman's perspective. A lot of the women I write about didn't have the opportunity to document their experiences from a first-person perspective. Um, So borrowing Joy Harjo's first-person narrative was really helpful in developing my thinking um, about those women's experiences. And then also, she really, to me in that poem, is describing the process of freeing oneself from colonial oppression and exploitation, um, which is both a personal and political process that um, Native women have been going through for some time and and continue to um, express their um, struggles and their their achievements through. So um, I wanted to use that poetic narrative in order to give more voice to the Native women I'm writing about, generally speaking. Um, 
I think a lot of people too, who are familiar with Native history, are somewhat familiar with a prominent poet like Joy Harjo. Um, so that was an opportunity for me to show an interdisciplinary approach. It makes sense if I'm using oral tradition that I would also use um, Native poetry, which is an ongoing form of oral tradition. So that, that was my thinking there. Um, and really, I think anytime a historian can rely on a poet to make important points, then then that's a good collaboration. Let's walk through then the stories of the six women who make up the primary focus of your book. And why don't we begin with uh, Lucia Martinez? Um, tell us about her really pretty incredible story. She started out as one of many people born in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands at the peak of an intertribal and international slave trade that focused specifically on Native women and children um, as the most vulnerable to being trafficked. And so she was born around 1854 uh, in her Yaqui homelands on the Sonoran side of the border, um, but was taken up in a raid and brought up into what became Arizona. Um, at the age of 10, she remarkably made her own escape from those captors uh, out into the Sonoran Desert in June, nonetheless, which for anyone who's familiar with Arizona's landscape would, would see that she must have had a lot of determination and courage to take that on. Um, while she planned her escape southward, presumably back to a homeland, she encountered King Woolsey and his civilian militia um, who captured her um, while they were scouting the hills for signs of mineral deposits and also um, to scout native settlements um, for future military campaigns. So they brought Lucia back into camp with them, and she lived with King Woolsey from there on. King Woolsey, within a month of taking Lucia from the desert, then went into the very first session of the Arizona Territorial Legislature and put into law a series of provisions that would make Lucia and other Native children and women vulnerable. Those included things like um, the minor consent law, which made any girl 10 and older a viable sexual partner for men. Lucia, of course, was 10 at the age that King Woolsey found and took her. He also helped to put into place a miscegenation law that banned Indian and white marriages. So any uh, sexual relationship between Native and white people would have been considered um, illicit by the state. He also helped to put into place a witness exclusion ban that did not allow Native and other racial ethnic minorities to testify against white defendants. Um, that would have made it impossible for Lucia and other Native children to testify if they had been uh, sexually assaulted or abused um, by any white Arizonan. He also helped to put into place the Minor Indian Indenture Law, which allowed any white Arizonan to claim the labor of a Native girl under the age of eight, 18 boy under the age of 21, um, without consent of parents. And so this gave him the legal tools to 
possessed Lucia um, at least until the age of 18. Between the age of 10 and 18, Lucia had three of King Wolsey's children, uh, two daughters and a son. And when she had the son, that was the same time that King Wolsey married um, a fellow Southerner who had moved to Arizona. And shortly after that marriage, Lucia shows up in Yuma, Arizona, um, what would today be about two hours from the Woolsey Ranch. She is then age 18, so it's possible that Woolsey and his wife evicted her, um, were done with her sentence as an indentured servant by the bounds of the minor Indian indenture law. Um, but it's also possible that they evicted her because of her presence on the ranch being a uncomfortable factor in their new marriage. In either case, um, she left with her son, but Woolsey kept the two daughters who were three and five at the time. And as Lucia had already shown herself to be a remarkably courageous person, um, she showed that courage once again by filing a writ of habeas corpus against King Woolsey to claim her daughters from him. Um, that writ was squashed, but she did manage still to get physical custody of her daughters, um, who were three and five at the time. And Woolsey signed an indenture contract on those daughters, which again would have been his right by that minor Indian indenture law. So Lucia uh, continued to remain in Yuma with her three children, um, perhaps until she died. Her death records are unclear, but in any case, she did continue to raise her children in Yuma. Um, by the time her daughters were 11 and 13, Woolsey actually did try to reclaim them um, by right of his indenture contract, but he also died suddenly. Uh, right around the same time. And Lucia um, managed to secure a settlement from his estate by the terms of the indenture bond, um, most of which did go to lawyer's fees, but some of which went to continue to raise her children. Um, her children, after her death, moved to the Phoenix area and held their own histories, family histories about their connections to Lucia and to the Woolsey family. And in the course of researching and conferencing about Lucia's story, um, I met Viola Romero, who is her great, great, great granddaughter and is currently an attorney in Tucson, Arizona. Um, and so it's been really powerful not only to be able to tell Lucia Martinez a story, but also to be able to learn more about her role in her own family history. Um, what makes Lucia remarkable to historians beyond Arizona um, is that she is the first Native woman to use the legal system on her behalf in that region. Um, as we know, she wasn't fully successful, but she did gain some um, recognition of her maternal rights that um, were, were very significant for her and for her children. Nora Jewell in the Puget Sound borderlands also fought to maintain sovereignty, in this case, particularly over her body. Can you tell us about her? Yeah, so Nora Jewell grew up in the same time period as Lucia Martinez, but in a very different context. 
Um, Nora was the daughter of uh, Fanny, a Salish woman. Her tribal origin is not named. Um, and an immigrant father, Peter Jewell. And while Lucia's um, intimate and domestic life was very turbulent and most likely very uh, abusive, Nora's domestic childhood seems to have been very positive. Peter and Fanny um, lived together as um, a very shared partnership. Um, the records from their household show uh, very comfortable um, accommodations and a lot of um, things that you would associate with a happy household as much as historians can from those sorts of records. Um, but unfortunately for Nora, her father died um, when she was just 12 years old. Under Washington's legal system, um, there had, by the time her father died, been an allowance for the inheritance rights of the daughters of white fathers and Indian mothers. But um, by a very technical reading of the law, Indian women's maternal custody rights out of those marriages were not formally recognized. And Indian widows, like Nora's mother, Fanny, were not granted inheritance rights. So when Peter died, that made Fanny extremely vulnerable as his widow. She had no um, claims, legal claims to his estate. Um, but Nora did because she was the oldest of three daughters. So um, through probate court, Nora's rights to the estate were protected, but she fell under Washington's guardianship system, which allowed probate judges to take uh, orphans, real or technical, meaning even children with parents who are living, and place them into more suitable homes with a guardian designated by the judge. And that's exactly what the judge did in Nora's case. So he disregarded the possibility of her mother keeping custody of her um, and also disregarded a very um, a very well-established maternal aunt who was also Salish and her immigrant husband, um, the Jones family who lived nearby, but put her instead in the home of a bachelor immigrant farmer. It's clear from the records that many people in the community, um, white and native, were concerned about that placement. And so within a matter of months, 12-year-old Nora was replaced into a different home, uh, the home of James Smith, who was married and also a homesteader. And so she was expected to help in the home as a domestic, um, as other um, children who were assigned to guardians. Within two years of that, um, that setting, Nora uh, was approached by her aunt about um, the signs of pregnancy. And Nora shared with her aunt that she had been sexually abused by uh, her guardian, her court-appointed guardian, for the two years that she lived with him. And uh, they went to a local judge with their story who agreed uh, to charge um, 
James Smith on the charge of rape, which is actually pretty unique and, and pretty significant um, because there aren't many cases in which judges agreed to take on a native woman's or a mixed race woman's charge against a white um, assailant. So the, the charge did go to trial. Nora testified. Um, the sheriff testified on Nora's behalf. Um, other um, members, respected members of the community testified on Nora's behalf. Um, and of course, her guardian also had witnesses on his side, but he ended up being acquitted. And the only negative testimony that was granted that might explain his acquittal is that Nora was a um, Native girl who was always known to try to be around her Native cousins. In the legal record, they used derogatory terms from the period, but that was basically the characterization that led the court to agree that she must have um, been deviant on her own accord and that James Smith was to be held unaccountable for his actions. Within a month of that, what must have been a devastating uh, ruling, Nora shows up in the records as married and living with um, another unknown immigrant bachelor. Um, what I can only assume was considered to be a marriage of convenience since she had a child on the way. Um, but by the time Nora turned 18, which would have been the time she inherited her father's estate, she had moved herself out of that household, reclaimed her maiden name of Jewel, had no child with her, and was living with a cousin in a Danish neighbor's household um, who had been a friend of her father's. She continued to have a relationship with her Jones cousin, so through her maternal Salish aunt. Uh, she continued to have a, a strong tie to the community on San Juan Island, um, but within a a few more years, um, she disappears from the San Juan Island records and she shows up in 1910 in Tacoma, Washington, um, which borders the Puyallup Reservation, so is in um, a mixed community in that time period. She also has some of her Salish cousins who are in the vicinity, so it looks like it was a move that she and family members made. Um, and she worked as a dressmaker there um, having sold the estate, the farm from her father's inheritance, um, presumably to make her way into Tacoma. And so despite this really turbulent um, and traumatic childhood, she manages to retain family ties, even though the court tried to sever those. Um, and she essentially reinvents herself um, within a short vicinity of her, her family's homeland, um, but still connected to the tribal community um, of Puget Sound. And similarly to my work with uh, Lucia Martinez's story, bringing me to her um, relatives, my work on Nora Jewell's story attracted um, the attention of locals. These are small, tight-knit communities. Um, and so I was able to meet the current owners of the Jewell homestead, um, Gard and Connie Sundstrom, and because they were so taken with Nora's story, um, they acted on their own to rename a short lane that borders the current Jewel property to Jewel Lane. 
And so if you go there today, there is a marker of her and her family's presence there, um, even though she isn't otherwise well known in the history of Puget Sound and that region, though she should be. And after telling Nora Jewell's story, you jump back down to the Arizona borderlands. And before you tell us about Juana Walker, who was John D. Walker and what was his relationship uh, to a woman named uh, Churga like? Juana Walker's father uh, is John D. Walker. She's similar to Nora Jewell in that she had a white father and a native mother. Um, John D. Walker is much more prominent than Nora's father, Peter Jewell, had been in local Arizona history. Um, to Peter's San Juan Island counterpart. John D. Walker um, had been part of many Southwesterners who wanted to join the Civil War effort, um, but found themselves stationed in Arizona, <laughs> to their surprise, um, because the Autumn were able to provide wheat and other food supplies that then went east into the uh, Civil War effort. And so John D. Walker's role uh, was largely, um, or rather his introduction to Arizona was largely through that role. While working with the Autumn on behalf of the U.S. military, he did befriend um, a number of them and actually became fluent in Autumn. Um, and he served in some ways as an ally and an intermediary on behalf of the Akimel Optum when they were working in the aftermath of the Civil War and westward expansion into Arizona to protect their land rights and also their water rights. And so he did have a positive relationship with a number of the autumn that he knew. And that is likely what framed the context of his relationship to Juana's mother, Churga. Um, as I said earlier, Arizona's laws banned these interracial marriages, um, but it did not prevent people certainly from having interracial relationships. And so uh, Churga and John Walker set up their own household um, in the Florence area. Um, and Juana Walker um, was born to what witnesses later described as a very positive and happy household, a positive relationship between Churga and John. While Juana was quite young, um, Churga left John um, for reasons unknown to us, but she returned to her home near Sacatone, um, on the reservation, and she brought Juana with her. Um, John D. Walker used his connections to ensure that they had access to um, rations and provisions through the trading post in what was a very difficult time for tribal members, um, referred to in memory as a starving time, due both to increasing restrictions to their rights to water and land um, from encroachment from white settlers, um, but also due to a number um, of epidemics that went through the community in this time period. Um, so that's the context that, that Juana grew up in, was in this sort of struggling community, but still with some privileged ties through her father, who did remain distant. Um, Juana, like other um, vulnerable Native children, was adopted out um, through the indenture system that I mentioned earlier 
into a Mormon family when her mother Churga died. And so she was um, from about the age of five or six on raised in a Mormon household. Um, and again, that was a, a common phenomenon throughout the Southwest in this time period. John D. Walker corresponded with her Mormon guardians and would send um, money and birthday gifts on her behalf from time to time. But he continued to leverage his autumn connections to establish the Vicol mine, which became a very productive mine. And he, uh, along with his white brothers who joined him in that um, mining endeavor, accumulated quite a, a strong estate. When he passed away, um, the brothers actually started a dispute over his inheritance with a white woman that he had married under quite sensational terms that the chapter outlines. Um, but for the first bit of that period after his immediate death, Juana remained out, out of the fray. Um, she did, once the brothers seemed to have a firm claim on his estate, enter her own claim as his daughter, um, which Arizona courts would have thrown out immediately because of the miscegenation ban that made all children of Native and white marriages illegitimate and therefore ineligible to be heirs. But what's remarkable is that the local jury of all white men actually ruled in Juana's favor, recognizing that she and her mother's tribal connections are what granted uh, her father access to mineral resource on tribal lands, um, and that he did have a very strong relationship to her community, even if he did not raise her himself. Um, but the brothers appealed um, because, again, they had the law technically on their side. And ultimately, Juana um, received a settlement, um, mostly because both parties were unable to pay for the case to continue to be heard. Um, but Juana, unlike um, Lucia and Nora, who did manage to retain family connections, was not able to retain those family connections to her community, probably because, again, she had been taken from her home at an early age. And she ended up um, moving to Tucson, where she lived in the Barrio Libre district, um, which was a inter-ethnic and low-income neighborhood. And that's where she ended up passing away in the early 20th century. Rebecca Lena Graham um, also struggled to gain her inheritance as a mixed race woman in the early 20th century in the Puget Sound borderlands. Can you tell us about her and her tribal community's struggle within the legal system? Rebecca Graham stands out for a lot of reasons. I think primary of which is that she's the only woman in the book who had a successful legal claim. She's um, the daughter of a Duwamish woman and an, um, a settler um, who had come from the east eastern part of the United States into the Seattle area um, right in the early settlement period. So he was part of the early frontier elite. And his marriage to Rebecca's mother um, made sense 
given his status as a member of the frontier elite because Rebecca's mother was the daughter of Curly, who uh, would be known for those familiar with Puget Sound and Duwamish history as a contemporary of uh, Chief Seattle, so also a very prominent member of his community. Their union did not last that long, um, and so Rebecca Graham was not raised by her father, but her mother did remarry to another um, settler immigrant, and her stepfather then did actually raise her, as well as um, her siblings, who were all born um, in in defiance of the miscegenation ban that Washington passed early in its territorial period, but then were made legitimate heirs in the revision to that miscegenation law that I mentioned when discussing Nora Jewell's case. And so when Rebecca's father passed away, just like Wana Walker, um, she did eventually file a claim to that estate um, Rebecca's father had made a substantial income by participating in some of the um, early land development um, of the Seattle downtown district, the Pioneer District. He was also involved in um, some of the building of the University of Washington campus. And so he had um, a sizable estate. As I mentioned, Rebecca's case was successful, um, not just because she had the technicality um, of Washington's legal allowance for the children of mixed race unions to be um, heirs to a father's estate, a white father's estate, but also, and we have to ask why there should be other reasons, because there were other mixed race heirs who did not receive um, the estate inheritances that they were entitled to. But in the case of Rebecca Graham, um, the judge, Cornelius Hanford, who ruled on her claim, recounted in his own memoirs of the pioneer period that, in fact, Rebecca's grandfather, Curly, had been personally responsible for saving his life as a child in what are known as the Puget Sound Indian Wars. And so as a historian who not only looks at the legal documents, but also the social context, I have to assume that um, Judge Hanford felt some opportunity to repay Curley's um, heroic gift <laughs> through his ability to rule on, on his granddaughter's estate claim. And so um, Rebecca did prove successful. The reason that she's important to Seattle and Duwamish history outside of the merits of her individual inheritance case is because she also represents this community of mixed race Duwamish um, children who raised their families with strong tribal ties throughout Puget Sound, even as they participated um, in building um, a basically middle-class lifestyle for themselves in the Seattle area. And today, the Duwamish are working um, very hard to establish federal recognition, um, which technically they had achieved, um, but 
was then stripped again in the transition from the Clinton to Bush administration um, some years ago. And so they continue to fight for federal recognition. One of the reasons that they had been denied federal recognition is because of the claim that the Duwamish were unable to maintain a persistent tribal identity through the late 19th and early 20th century period that Rebecca Graham grew up in and in the era that she and other Duwamish people built their community in. And so Graham's case involves a lot of testimony from Duwamish and American witnesses to the strength of that Duwamish community in the Seattle region that would have direct relevance to the Duwamish claims for federal recognition. You also describe... Dinah Hood's story as different from many of the other stories told in the book. And you describe it as a story of, at least in part, avoidance and silence rather than of filing suits and submitting evidence like many of the other women whose stories you describe. Can you tell us about her? Dinah's chapter marks a transition, as you note, from histories that came specifically out of um, legal actions, out of trials and out of um, cases. But there were also these sorts of documents that showed that Native women were engaged in legal debate, but not necessarily as litigants. And so Dinah falls into that category. Um, Dinah Hood was born in the immediate aftermath of Yavapai removal to the San Carlos Apache Reservation. Um, in the early 1870s, she, like other Yavapai children, was then schooled at the Santa Fe Indian School. And by the time she turned 18, she returned to her family's encampment just outside of Prescott. Uh, right around 1900, there were a number of Yavapai families who left the San Carlos Apache Reserve um, really without sanction, but because there was a greater need for cheap labor in the Prescott vicinity, which is the Yavapai homeland, they were um, sort of permitted to return. So Dinah and her family um, lived on what was essentially a, a trash heap that Prescott residents had set aside just as a place for um, discard but it was also this jurisdictional gray zone because it stood between the Prescott municipal border and the Fort Whipple federal grounds. Um, but it was Yavapai homeland occupied by Yavapais and then a handful of itinerant Mexicans. In 1912, there was a murder in that camp. And that's basically the reason we know about Dinah Hood and her family. They were called to testify um, about the murder in the um, local court. And as I mentioned before, there had been under Arizona's territorial laws a ban on Indian testimony against white defendants. And that is exactly what was involved in this particular case. It was one that the prosecution would have relied heavily on Yavapai testimony uh, against a Mexican defendant who was legally white. So um, they had to appeal um, to, to allow for Yavapai testimony. What's remarkable is that most of the Yavapais were resistant to testify. 
they did not want to participate in this trial as witnesses or otherwise. Um, and something that I discuss in this chapter is that the very same Yavapais who are being compelled to testify about this murder in their camp are the same who had been denied the opportunity to speak to the violence that they experienced at the hands of the U.S. military and local uh, citizen militias when they experienced forced removal um, and incidents of genocide at the hands of, of their Prescott neighbors, basically. And so there's this real tension between the type of testimony that the state wants and denies at the same time. And Dinah and her family are caught up in that. Um, after the trial, Dinah moves um, to another town nearby her husband passes, and so she's widowed, and she takes her children and works basically in a mining town as a laundress. Um, and what she represents is the way in which Yavapai women and their families really had to be tenacious in their land claims, um, that they had to camp on traditional homelands that had become dangerous, that had become toxic, um, and yet they managed to not only build families but retain the longevity of their claims to land and sovereignty so that by 1935, um, Yavapai leaders, including Viola Jamula, are able to get federal recognition uh, for the lands that included the camp that Dinah Hood and her family had claimed in 1900 right outside of Prescott. And the last woman whose story you cover in the book is uh, that of Louisa Enoch. Um, and although her story also takes place mostly outside of courtrooms, how did Louisa fight for land claims despite being barred from official legal avenues? And what is her story? So Louisa Enoch is a Sox woman who was born in the um, second or the last quarter of the 19th century. And that similarly to Dinah Hood's early childhood, is a period of intense um, violence and removal for the Sox Seattle at the hands of American neighbors. And in the process of being displaced, uh, Louisa and a number of other Sox Seattle um, friends and, and relatives took advantage of an a innovation in the law to recognize off-reservation tribal allotments. And not a lot of people have paid attention to the off-reservation allotments. Usually allotment history has to do with um, what we might more readily recognize as, as reservation allotments that resulted in things like checkerboard reservations and so on. Um, but there were these public domain uh, allotments that were allowed. And so Enoch in her young adulthood, along with her husband, filed for one of those public domain allotments. Um, and they had the participation of the uh, Office of Indian Affairs. They had the, um, the Bureau of Land Management um, as part of this bureaucratic process. The land was surveyed. And so everything should have been very straightforward and approved. But in the sequence of efforts by Louisa Enoch to prove up that claim, she was denied um, through the Bureau of Land Management. 
And so she fought that denial and taking of her lands through the appropriate bureaucratic uh, venues. She had a letter writing campaign. She invited surveyors to her property. Um, she garnered um, non-Indian allies to write and, and report on her behalf uh, to the legitimacy of her claim. And in the midst of all that, she was also raising a family and uh, practicing subsistence lifestyle. Um, she did become ill in the course of this effort to uh, gain recognition for her, her property ownership, and she passed away before it was resolved. But two of her daughters continued the campaign after her passing. Um, and like many other Sox Weattle members of this generation, ultimately Enoch's claim was denied. And so she was not able to retain her property, even though she had um, gained it through a federal and locally recognized mechanism. And so her story represents this form of bureaucratic incompetency and violence that in the aftermath of explicit genocidal campaigns continued to result in tribal dispossession and continued to elicit a very strong and strategic critique from Native women and their families. And finally, you end the book with a conclusion that is, it's a little unusual in a, in a very positive way, but it essentially, it serves as a call to action on the part of archivists and historians. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the methodological process of writing legal codes and talking trees and what history as a discipline can and should be doing to include stories of indigenous women in accounts of settler colonial legal regimes and other histories of the American West? Well, I have to really um, thank my editor, Laura DeVoulis, uh, who's no longer at Yale, but who took on my project in supporting my decision not to have a summative conclusion. Um, and then also I have to thank the readers who, like you, acknowledged that it was unusual, but said that it was an important conversation to have. Um, and so it's really through their support that I was able to have this conversation in that final chapter. And what I wanted to speak to was um, a line in uh, Joy Harjo's poem that really stood out for me, which was the acts of forgetfulness. Um, Again, in my own childhood, I had seen Native women's activism from kitchens to courtrooms. And when I looked back at 19th century histories, I didn't really see their work being demonstrated. Uh, so I was convinced it would be in the archives um, because it's so widely known in recollections um, in tribal histories and um it's something we seem to know, but haven't really been able to um, write about. So when I went into archives and told people what I wanted to work on, oftentimes the first response I received from archivists was, one, um, we're not a federal archive, and therefore we don't have Indian material. So what they were referring to is the fact that most people rely on NARA 
for the RG75 Office of Indian Affairs, Bureau of Indian Affairs collection as a starting point for their discussions of 19th century Native history. Um, but of course, I was interested in looking at more of the local engagement with legal regimes that Native women took on. So the second response I typically got when I tried to push beyond that NARA conversation was either that Native people had been well-treated within those um, communities that generated this archival material, and therefore I shouldn't bother looking because I wouldn't find anything that would suggest a legal claim. Or two, um, that again, it's okay to look beyond the federal archive, but they were really quite sure I wouldn't find anything. And I think that speaks to the fact I pointed to earlier about the way we index legal records. Um, you can't really go anywhere and just say, can you show me all your cases that involved a native defendant, a native litigant, a native witness, or any other racial eth ethnic group for that matter, because that's just not how they're organized. And so I think a lot of times the archivists themselves didn't even realize how much native material their collections held. And this process speaks to what many other scholars have pointed to in the colonial archive, that there is this silencing, there is this obscuring, and there are these um, very material acts of forgetfulness that bar us from knowing more about native women's and native people's engagement with the 19th century state. So I wanted to talk about my experience in, in getting through that um, sort of web or through that layer of forgetfulness and, and moving into the material that really did evoke Native women's voices um, and claims against the state. Another thing that I wanted to talk about in that chapter was the special status that academic researchers have by having access to the resources and to the privileges that gain us access and entry into those archives. Um, I know that on the ground that conversation happens in really important ways, but I haven't seen people write about it as often as I would like to see. And so in that regard, I wanted to talk about my responsibility as this privileged academic in pulling material out of the archive and returning it to the tribal communities, to the families, and to the um, residents of those communities I was writing about, who, as I mentioned earlier, um, are living in relatively small towns, often um, removed from the site of the archive that holds their material. Um, and even if they have the educational access to um, be aware of how to get into the archive, it doesn't mean that they can leave a full-time job in order to go and spend a week at the NARA in Seattle. It doesn't mean that they have the cachet to ask for something five different ways to try to explain to an archivist exactly what you're looking for and to really have the um, conviction to say, I think I'm looking for something that you have, even if you're not sure that you have it. Um, so in the process of researching this book, I made sure to reach out to the tribal communities that are represented. And the first thing I did was share with them 
the copies of all the archival material that I had found and was using to write these chapters. Um, usually I went through uh, either the Tribal Historic Preservation Office or through Tribal Council, depending on the community. Um, sometimes they received me formally, sometimes they received me informally, and sometimes they actually put me in touch with family members um, rather than go through sort of an official transfer of archives. Instead, it was basically an opportunity to hand people a stack of legal documents and newspaper articles about their relatives and have a chance to really have a cool conversation. Um, so the book doesn't incorporate those conversations because I wasn't trying to do oral histories, but it's really about establishing a dialogue between researchers and the communities we write about. So it was really neat that, like I said, my editor and my readers um, supported my opportunity to have that conversation. Um, I really loved the conclusion, and I will be assigning it for students in the future, for sure. It was really, it was great. It was very well done. Um, Thank you. So Katrina, now that the book is out, do you have a sense of what you are working on next? Any future products coming down the pike at all? Products, future projects coming down the pike, I should say. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have two um, projects I'm working on right now. One, um, because of all the material I looked at but couldn't use in this project, I'm returning to a number of habeas corpus cases from territorial Washington. Um, habeas corpus is a provision that Native women used um, both to gain custody of children, but also to protest their confinement on reservations. Um, white women were using it for custody provision as well. They were also using it to dispute um, their status as um, property, as a wife under coverture. And so they were challenging marriages through habeas corpus. Chinese women were using habeas corpus to challenge deportation in Puget Sound. Um, and there are occasional cases uh, in the West, more broadly speaking, um, in the, the antebellum era of African-Americans using habeas corpus to protest their continued enslavement in free territories. So I'm looking specifically at women, but women from a variety of racial ethnic backgrounds in the ways they used habeas corpus to challenge um, forms of patriarchal and uh, white supremacy supremacist authority. So that's one project. Um, one of the habeas corpus petitions that I found involved an Aboriginal woman who had been abducted in Sydney in New South Wales and taken to Seattle by a lumber uh, broker who was a British Australian. And that case has given me the opportunity to think more transnationally about the way in which American and British settler colonists collaborated in their exploitation of Aboriginal and Indigenous women and their natural resources like timber, which in the Pacific Northwest at the turn of the 20th century is still being taken from unceded tribal lands. And so um, as I developed the Washington habeas corpus project, that's also given me a chance to prepare for this larger project, looking at um, the way in which, again, British uh, and American colonial networks are working together to make Native women and their resources more vulnerable. Well, I look forward to hearing more about those in the future.
Um, Katrina Jagodinsky is an associate professor of history at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln and is the author of the 2016 book, Legal Codes and Talking Trees, Indigenous Women's Sovereignty in the Sonoran and Puget Sound Borderlands, 1854 to 1946, which came out in 2016 with Yale University Press. Katrina, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. I enjoyed it. 